This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Episode number 50 of the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. It is February the 4th of 2021, and I just want to say thank you to you for the work you do, saving lives every single day, for sharing that work with us and with everyone else. It is super fun to do this podcast and an honor to be able to share the information and stories and the fact that you have subscribed and listened and share the podcast on behalf of the badass team behind this thing. Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta, we cannot thank you enough. And I hope we get to do this podcast for some time to come, mostly because I have no idea what other job best friends I could do at this point. So to celebrate the 50th, do me a solid and share this right now on your Facebook. Just put in bestfriends.org slash podcast. A mea culpa, because last week I said the guest for episode 50 would be the CEO of Best Friends, Julie Castle. She was the very first guest, so it just kind of made sense. But I made a bad call. I decided to wait until the last minute to schedule the interview. I really wanted any conversation about current events to be current. But she's the CEO of a national nonprofit organization steering the ship through a global pandemic. So she had to postpone, and it's all good. We'll have her on again soon. So this week is someone who is certainly not second best, and that is Francis Batista. He's one of the founders of Best Friends. He's also chairman of the board, and it's hard to describe Francis. I mean, Renaissance man, it really sells him short. He's one of those people, he just knows a lot about a lot of things. He's a brilliant man. So getting the opportunity to chat with him a little bit about best friends, but also talk about the no-kill movement, where we've been and what he thinks is ahead. Always a treat for me to chat with Francis, and I hope you enjoy episode number 50 with Francis Batista. Hey, Francis, thanks for chatting with me. I mean, listen, all the founders of Best Friends played a part, vital roles, right, in the building of what Best Friends has become. So tell me the role you've played and the work uh, maybe you're doing today within the organization. Well, John, thank you for this. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to being on your podcast. It's a really cool undertaking and very exciting. So my name is Francis Batista. I'm one of the founders of Best Friends. Uh, my principal claim to fame uh, locally is that I found the property back in the day, but also been working uh, with all of the other founders and all the folks such as yourself and Julie and everybody who's come up over the years to really help build the organization. And my role now is principally as an internal consultant. I do a fair amount of writing as well. And also uh, I'm chairman of the board of directors. So that's something that takes up a considerable amount of time and attention. So let's go back in time to the early days you find that land in Southern Utah where the sanctuary is now, and then what? Because the reason I'm asking this specifically is that a lot of the listeners of the podcast are themselves founders of organizations, or they want to start an organization, or they're leading organizations. And I think we have so much to learn from best friends in that regard. So I do want to try to get an understanding of what those days were like, You know, what discussions you had. Uh, like what it, what was the goal of what we were doing here? So 
back when uh, we didn't really have a, an inkling as to how any of this would pan out. We weren't looking to build a, a national organization. We were looking to save animals. Uh, we were kind of following our nose. And as we got deeper and deeper into the work that we were doing and found that, my God, this is a bottomless pit of need in terms of how many animals were being killed, what the story was outside of our little corner of the world, uh, we realized that, well, as cool as a, an enormous sanctuary in Southern Utah is, it really is not the solution to the problem of animals being killed in shelters. But we were like most rescuers and most rescuers, you know, have this idealized dream of, gee, I really want to have a, a ranch or a place where I can take all of the animals. And so we were like the dog that caught the car, you know, so now we got it and we had to figure out, okay, now we've got this. And then it really became, uh, it was showtime. We didn't appreciate the extent of the need locally. We thought, how bad could it be? It's a little town. We saw one of our dogs had gone stray, wound up in the this terrible shelter down in the back side of the airport in this little uh, western town of Kanab. And there was a tin roof shed in a field once a week. A vet would come from uh, St. George about 50 miles away. And any animals that were there were put down. It was really sad. And we thought, look, anything we do, anything we do would have to be better than this. So I was dispatched to go and talk to the mayor. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have heard this story, but I was uh, asked to delegate it to talk to the mayor and say, hey, you know, we've just acquired this property and we'd like to do animal control. And he was watering his begonias or whatever he was doing in his front yard there. You know, he had one of these fan attachments on the end of a hose and was fanning back and forth, watering the flowers. He looked at me, turned back to the flowers and said, sure. Uh, like, you know, you want to waste your money? Go ahead. Whatever, whatever you want to do. I mean, he could have cared less. We could have been making sausages for all he cared. He said, so I said, so what next? He said, well, go see the uh, chief of police on Monday. That's where Faith stepped in, one of my co-founders, Faith Maloney. And so she became the uh, designated animal control officer or the default animal control officer. She never really held an official position with the city or the county. But she eventually became animal control officer for Kanab, Kane County, uh, Garfield County, and also Mojave County in Arizona. So it was a, a serious undertaking. And before we knew it, uh, we had no inkling of what we were getting ourselves into. But within a couple of years, we had 1,000, then 1,300, then 1,500 animals. And we realized, shoot, man, this is going to be a, we need to get our act together here because these guys are, obviously, we weren't, the animals that came, we took care of. There was no, I thought, even a remote inkling of putting an animal down. So we just had more and more animals and we weren't like we were set up for adoptions. So we had to really build a whole program from scratch. We had to reinvent the wheel all along the way. And that is what has now become best friends. We started doing mobile adoptions at, you know, the, the Petco in Las Vegas and over in St. George, we were running out of money. We had set aside some of our various resources and inheritances and whatever anybody money anybody had to build this uh, sanctuary and retreat as we had imagined it. When we arrived here, we had about 200 dogs and cats from our prior work in Arizona down in Prescott. And so we were probably the biggest animal sanctuary in the country when we started without even regarding ourselves as an animal sanctuary. 
and then it just grew from there. And then we really, really had to work hard to make put the whole thing together. So it was a lot of, you know, every all hands on deck. It was kind of a line in the sand, literally sand. Uh, and, you know, that we had to be the, if we didn't make this work, this was going to be a really bad news story. This was, you know, we had, we'd seen that before uh, in other places. And we knew that, look, we here we are, we've got about a, 1300 dogs and cats. We are hand to mouth. We are trying to figure this out. And it was just double time overtime. It was a 24 seven job. We were doing the, the building of the place, the care for the animals. And then in about 1990, the most of us had to go out and figure out how to raise money to feed the animals and to make a go of this. And in that effort of pushing the message out and the idea of no kill the idea that you know you have this no kill sanctuary that was something that was so magnetic to people and captured the the hearts of people and the idea of no kill at the time was something that was really pretty much unheard of there was you know some rich was doing his thing up rich avanzina was doing his thing in san francisco but for the most part no one had heard of what of the idea of no kill and the idea that with will and commitment and determination and just doing the right thing we can actually change the way we relate to homeless pets. And I think this is an interesting point because, you know, no kill has become sort of synonymous with the idea of a goal and a number and, you know, 90% or whatever percentage you want to assign to it. That didn't start like that. For us, no kill was a philosophy. It was simply the fact of we had been working and living together for a number of years prior to, to this. We Animals had always been baked into the cake as part of our undertaking. We'd uh, were animal rescuers from the get-go. And our understanding and where we'd come to in all of our years together was the idea that the best, that the only way, the only successful way to get through life is with through kindness. Kindness is the only route to, to forward. It's the only way to stay unentangled. It's the only way to go through life without regret. It's the only way to have positive impact. Uh, and so that kindness uh, wasn't something, so no-kill wasn't something that was adopted as a protocol for operating our work with animals. It was a simple outgrowth of the idea of kindness, that these animals have every much as right to live and be loved and to have a, a quality of life as we do. Uh, and that kindness to animals was kind of the bottom line and essential component of the idea of kindness. Kindness is, if that's component of a spiritual life, of a life uh, of how to proceed in our, our journey through life, those animals, those in our immediate circle, particularly are those that are most in need. Because all of the kind of the crud, you know, the crap rolls downhill and that the animals are the least powerful in our circle. Uh, and they are the ones that receive the brunt of everything. And that also extends out to the environment and to wildlife and to all sorts of things. But in our uh, undertaking our first step, the first circle of activity was homeless pets. So no kill wasn't adopted as a construct or a goal or uh, a, 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 an operating protocol. It was a natural extension of this idea of kindness. So that then started building this whole concept of no kill as something that was had impact and interest beyond the boundaries of the sanctuary. So as we started going out setting up tables to raise money around the country, it really sparked the imagination of people. And we had people flocking to us as members and supporters and wanting help and wanting, you know, participation. And how do we do this? How do we do this here? How can you help us? And so we started then connecting our members with local organizations and 
took off from there. You say the need was there then, but the need is obviously still here now. And even with all the amazing progress, the need is still too big and it's everywhere. And I bet that without too much effort, we could have 5,000 animals at the sanctuary pretty quickly. So there's that metaphor of the cat on the doorstep. I've used it before on the podcast, and I think you actually might have been the one that told me this. You see a cat on the doorstep, you save the cat. Next day, another cat, save the cat. Next day, so on and so on. But at some point, you have to say, like, why the hell do these cats keep showing up on my doorstep? And how do I stop that? Sure. So was there that realization of growing the sanctuary to 5,000 animals doesn't really do anything to stop the animals from showing up on the doorstep? For sure. And uh, there was definitely a point in time when we, uh, we realized, okay, this is not the solution to the world's problems. It's a spectacular demonstration of principle. And also it's wonderful to be able to help the animals that we can help. But we realize that we need to be, turn ourselves into mentors, instructors, and facilitators for other people. And so uh, sometime there in the, I guess, mid nineties, we started doing work to train other people. We started the programs related to how to start a sanctuary. We began doing things that would eventually become a version of the network where we mobilized our membership in local communities to help problems that had been identified uh, locally. I mean, I can remember being presented with some problems. I, I get, it might have even been Nebraska, somewhere like that. And so what we did was I, we got all of our, uh, every phone number we had in that area, and we just cold called people and ask them if they would be willing to help person X with this issue. And it pulled together this team of volunteers who had never met, completely remote, who were doing, started doing work to help solve a, you know, a, a feral cat community issue in Nebraska just by cold calling people. And so things like that then sort of were identified directions in which to proceed. And also, we started doing things called members meetings where we would travel around the country, hold a, host a meeting in a community and also invite all of the rescue organizations in that area and the shelters and whomever to attend the meeting to meet our members so that we could hook up our members with these local organizations so that uh, we were building this membership base, but also sharing it and sharing that resource with local organizations so that that work could be done. So at a certain point, we realized that, okay, the, the solution is not here. This is a wonderful demonstration. It's an example. It's kind of a mecca for people. It's a place of learning and instruction. And it's a place that really kind of specialized care for animals that we're able to bring here. But really the work is out there to train, to mentor, to support, to facilitate, to build this whole network of, uh, of no-kill uh, understanding and commitment that ultimately evolved into the kind of world that we see today, where there are, uh, you know, thousands of no-kill communities, and we're not, we can't. It's not all best friends didn't accomplish all of that, but best friends was really very instrumental in pushing this idea out, and in building support for folks. That sort of thing evolved into the conferences. The first conference we did was in 2001 in Virginia Beach. So, creating this network, the idea of coalitions, formal and informal 
is something that's really been part of this. And I think it was largely necessitated by the fact that we were so disconnected physically from uh, so many people and from the, our, our constituency and also from the, the, the problem that it, the only sensible way that this could be approached was through uh, coalitions. And we didn't necessarily, to begin with, call them coalitions, but that's really what they were. The first conference, 2001, you said? Yeah. I was 11 years old. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. And this is not at all meant to be an episode where I just heap praise on best friends to a founder. And, you know, people are like, wow, this is weird propaganda. But I, I do genuinely believe that best friends, what makes best friends special? Yes, the sanctuary is a very special place, a utopia. There are these amazing programs, facilities across the country. But to me, Best Friends is special, not because of a building, you know, a structure. It's not something you can create with the, you know, uh, best PR or marketing firm in New York. There's something else to that, which is the foundation of Best Friends, the vision, the guiding principles, the core values. And just to bring this back to those with organizations, I think for me, it highlights the importance of that notion of it's not what you do, it's who you are, it's why you do it. Can you talk about the process of understanding and developing that and turning it into something that was more than just, you know, we believe in kindness? Sure. Well, the, the, and that is difficult. We call it the flame. Uh, the flame of best friends, which are these intangibles. And it's something that can't be specifically defined and shouldn't be specifically defined, but you know, that you can sort of make a decision tree based on them. And the idea is all stems out of a very kind of simple and some might regard as hokey idea of the golden rule, do unto others as you would they do unto you. And that was something that uh, we, we, you know, we, isn't something we perfected or that we always meet, but it's a, it's a bar that you measure yourself against and that you measure your work against. Uh, and if you're honest with yourself, you know when you're being a jerk uh, and you know when you're, when you're approaching what you intend to do. Uh, and so that idea of treating others and not just other people, but the animals, the land, the trees. So when we built this place, uh, we endeavored not to cut trees. You, we built around the trees. So if you come and visit uh, and you go to the village, you'll see that it kind of goes in a bit of a wonky direction. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not a straight line because it was built around the trees that were there. That respect for the, the environment, respect for the animals, respect for the creatures, respect for each other is something that you have to work at. It doesn't mean we don't have disagreements with people or you know, that every, we, everybody, we love everyone. It's not, that's not the idea here. The idea is really, how would you like to be treated in this situation? And if you were you know, this dog, you know, travel off this kind of idea of you treat people like a frightened dog and a dog like a frightened person, you know, you, you kind of, you make up, you have to make up the ground between you and, and whatever it is you, you want to, to accomplish. And the onus is on us to make that work. So the onus is always, we've always seen the onus as being on us to make things work. Uh, and whether that's with an individual animal, with uh, the public, with the situation, it's the onus is on us to have that positive relationship. And so that kind of principle of uh, do unto others and kindness and compassion, respect, all of those things, then you can sort of build out from there. 
but it wasn't something like we took an oath on a set of principles and you know this it was simply the way we had been uh the dynamic of the relationships that we built over over the years because we've been living and working and trying to come to grips with how do we as human beings function in the world and also how do we work out our relationship with each other how do we have honest communication how do we go through all of these things and so that set of uh skills in a sense informed everything we did when we started best friends and the the animal operation and one of the things that was made it work people say well how you guys have been together for so long how did you manage to stay together and really it's on the very simple level of you know we'd worked out who was going to do the dishes uh before we got to that point you know because that's where things break down on kind of just the distribution of the most menial useless annoying tasks that have to be done everybody had to, to pitch in at every level so there was no question about who was going to do the dishes. It was whoever's turn it was. There was no question about getting up at you know 6 a.m. because there was a broken pipe. There was no question about feeding the animals and also doing everything we could to come up with the resources and whether that was going uh, to getting broken bags from the supermarket or getting things from the, the dog food plant or calling around and getting equipment and supplies and resources from construction sites around the country. So for example, if you come to the village and you go out the side doors, one of them used to say Hertz and the other one used to say Avis. They came out of the San Antonio airport. Um, you know, we were scavengers. You know, we, we weren't um, trust fund babies. We didn't have a lot of money to get this thing off the ground. We had to scrabble and scrape and scavenge. And so it's easy when people look at best friends and see, well, you know, that's, uh, well, we can't do that, that you guys have all this stuff and you can do this and you can, well, we didn't always have all that stuff. But what we had was a team of people who were prepared to support each other and fill in different roles. So when we all had to uh, go out and spend most of our time being ambassadors for the operation and essentially begging and raising money at uh, tables outside of supermarkets, you know, Faith was handling 500 dogs on her own. She was, she and her daughter and some volunteers were doing all of that work. So we always had part of the team willing to do whatever was needed to make it a go. To be clear, one or two people caring for 500 dogs, maybe not the best idea and certainly not a recommendation on the Best Friends podcast. Well, you mentioned Faith. She, for a long time, has led a week-long course in Canab called How to Start a Sanctuary. And tell me, Francis, what is the first lesson? Don't. <laughs> exactly. But also, you know, back in the day, it's very interesting because, you know, when we started, the whatever the exact number was, it was in the millions. And, you know, the number we quote is like 17 million animals are being killed each year. Anything you could do for an animal, anything that kept it out of a shelter or the likelihood of it being killed in a shelter was a positive. And one of the things that's, that's been so interesting is to see the, the change in the profile of what constitutes a problem animal over the years. Back in the early days, a problem animal was a, you know, a, an adolescent teenage two-year-old black lab mix that dug holes in the backyard, jumped up, knocked the kids over, chewed the furniture, and was a general kind of, you know, out of control pet. That was a problem dog. And we had hundreds of them. And also when we, when we, uh, in the old days, we used to have just what we called the trustees. There were dozens and dozens of dogs just running around in the, in the general area. That's why it was called Dogtown. 
So to care for them was a lot easier than it is now because now you're, many of the animals that you're dealing with have either very specialized medical needs, very specialized behavior needs. It's not like, hey, just a bunch of goofy, friendly dogs who are out there kind of um, killing time, uh, hoping that somebody's going to come along and adopt one of them. It was a different profile and a different management principle. Now it's much more technical. It's much more skilled. My hat's off to the folks who are doing that work now because it really is much more skill-based than when we started. Although, you know, our approach to all of this was badges. We don't need no stinking badges. You know, it was like um, this is because all of the, the, the traditional organizations, traditional humane organizations were touting the, num the letters after their name and their credentials and their qualifications, but they were killing millions of animals. And we came at this from, look, man, this is uh, not rocket science. This is a work of the heart. If you want to do it and you want to save lives, you can save lives. Uh, and what we were doing was saving lives. It was imperfect. And as we were able to do better, we did better. But one of the things that um, this propelled us into were, in I guess about 1990, uh, 1991, kind of the shit hit the fan. And we really were hit hard times. We were hand to mouth. We had running out of resources. And I remember one time we, oh, we had like a warehouse of dog biscuits and no dog food. And so Stephen, uh, he turned a, a Toro rototiller, built a, a, a hopper box, turned the thing upside down, fed the dog biscuits in, and that was turning out kibble from the dog biscuits. It's not ideal, but it was, it saw us through. And I think he even got a, an award from the Toro company for innovative use of their machinery. <laughs> and uh, then we went out to, in order to continue this supply line, we had to go for, further afield. And so we were working in meeting people in Los Angeles, in Salt Lake, in San Francisco, in Seattle, in Denver, New Mexico, Arizona, you know, all over the Southwest in this region to both raise money and spread the word. And we built a really remarkable base of support. So within a couple of years, simply sitting at tables and signing people up and talking to people. And it was it was a hard work and it was a full time commitment. But we were able to generate about 70,000 names in a couple of years of people who had we'd met who were interested in participating, at least on paper. And then we followed that up, built the mailing list. It was a long, slow procedure. And of course, we had uh, some genius behind it. You know, we had genius work going on on all levels. So while we were doing this work with the animals uh, on very hands-on, we had folks like, you know, Michael Mountain and Stephen Hirano, who were crafting the message, editing and printing the magazine. It started out on little, one of those little copier machines that, I don't know what they used to call them, but they're not a stenograph. Anyway, you, they're, they're very low. Like, like a photocopier? What's that? Xerox machine. No, no, before pre-photocopier. Pre you know, it's kind of a stenography, not stenography, but it's a little one of these things that rolls around. has print. A, a printing press? Yeah, but it wasn't a print. It was pre-printing press, but it was the most simple, basic printing press you can imagine. And that's what we were turning things out on. And we used to go and have, uh, you know, at, down at the local newspaper, get them to photograph our handmade layouts. And it started out as just a newsletter. In fact, the magazine started out as a, a bulletin board called the um, Wall of Triumph. So the Wall of Triumph was this bulletin board that simply was uh, Michael posting stories that he'd come across. He was sort of an early adopter of 
the of online activity of the internet, well, early internet, uh, pre-web. And we'd have these stories posted on the board. They were really there to cheer us up. There was good news, you know, because we were, you know, we were peeling animals off the street. And it was this, uh, the idea that there was a light at the end of the tunnel was not, was not something we ever imagined there would be. This was just seemed like a bottomless pit of, you know, this is something we're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. We don't know that there's going to be a solution. We're going to work our ass off at it, but we don't know that we'll ever, this is a, this is a commitment that we made and we're going to continue to do it. And uh, this wall of triumph was a, uh, a bulletin board that had just posted stories of positive news, things that were happening. And it was as much to encourage us as it was to, you know, share that information. That then turned into the magazine, which is all the good news about animals, wildlife, and the earth was the way it first started. And the first edition of it was called the Raven Review or the Raven Report. It was about a couple of ravens flying around the sanctuary, spreading news around the place. And it was genius. It was these. Uh, it was the, developed the idea of that you know you talk to the animals and the animals talk back. That there's a relationship here. You're not moving widgets around. You're dealing with your friends, and your friends have interests. They have a perspective. They have lives. Their lives have value, and we can share that life with them uh, by just observing, listening, working with them, participating. And those stories became sort of the heart and soul of the messaging of best friends. So it wasn't simply about philosophy or pushing out a, a theory. It was about sharing the value and the interest of the lives of the animals that we had in our, uh, were privileged to have amongst us. And that really changed the way animal welfare was communicating. Because prior to that, it was just, uh, if you got an animal welfare magazine or an animal rights magazine from the 80s or early 90s it was all you know blood and guts and animals and traps and peeling skin and dre's tests and rabbits with blistering eyes and you know things you couldn't look at but you felt obliged to make a donation so you'd peel the the cover back look at a picture and say can't can't deal with this and send in a donation we used to get so many people who say yours i get every i get every animal magazine but yours is the only one i read and i give to everyone i don't necessarily give you the most but i always give to you so when things get tight or, you know, I'm going through a bit of a difficult time, I might cut back on some of the others, but I always give to you. Not necessarily I give you a lot, but I always give to you. And so that was really the, the foundation of our support it was a very broad base of support, mom and pop donation. And it was this very personal and immediate relationship with the animals. And Best Friends was the messenger for all of that. So it wasn't, again, you know, that has been much more powerful, the stories and the relationships with the animals and the understanding that, yes, you can build relationships with these animals and the animals are, their lives are as interesting or if not more than, than our own. And so that's something that was we were able to communicate. See, that's interesting, that Raven thing. And I, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, the magazine, uh, you know, Tomato the Cat, there were these reporter columnist animals and, and at the sanctuary, I feel like you can use that storytelling, which is, I mean, let's be real, to a lot of people, uh, even, you know, your average animal lover across the country, that's kind of weird and goofy. You know, these crazy people with a magazine where birds are writing the story. So, like, as the work of Best Friends grows and shifts and, you know, growing across the country, maybe that doesn't really work when you're talking about what's happening at a shelter in a big city so that's a shift to the organization. 
shifting an organization like that, you know, whether it's broadening or narrowing a focus, that's a big task. Can you talk about how you've gone through that, uh, Best Friends? Sure. One of the things that was uh, the first, the but just to, to not to to community to get back to that slightly, the power of that narrative then compelled people or drove people who said so they would then go and talk to their shelter or their rescue or their humane society and say, hey, look, why are we killing animals? Why are you guys? So it started pushing, putting pressure to change. So this, what, what best friends, the first effect was, and, and I guess this is the, the lasting effect and it's the continuing effect and the way we work now is by motivating local people to initiate change in their community we are able to do now much more than we were ever able to do before. And we can help and facilitate and really make a huge difference when we are engaged at the local level with our staff and our embeds and all the things that we're doing now, community cat programs. I mean, it's, it's boggling and blows my mind. But the real power, and not the real power, but that doesn't have, that, that can't live on its own. People aren't gonna say, hey, hey, best friends, come on in and help us, unless there's that groundswell of, of interest and drive from the community. So that has always been the, the motivator for change, is that the narrative of that things, we don't need to do this, things can be better. And the animals, not only can we do it, but we should do it because these animals and their lives are valuable and have merit and worth. So when we started going out to these other cities, like Sylvan and I did a lot of work in Los Angeles. And to begin with, we were really just raising money. But we, as the more we met people, uh, people who were really interested in uh, kind of their eyes were open to the possibilities. We started getting volunteers. And so we started doing more and more programs. And then we started doing things like super adoptions. So the first super adoptions that Best Friends did were at, you know, in Los Angeles. And to begin with, you know, there was a lot of very skeptical people and people who were suspicious of each other and people who thought they were competing for the same, you know, $2 donation. And those events created de facto coalitions. And what it demonstrated was that, you know, we're stronger together. Somebody passed along this idea, you know, you have one Chinese restaurant, another one opens across the street and it's competition. You have 10 Chinese restaurants, and then you have Chinatown and it's a, an attraction and people flock and you have something that you're promoting. On one corner, you have an adoption group on every weekend. You get another uh, on the other corner and I can visualize the corners right now, uh, They uh, another group. And that looks like competition. But when you bring all those people together, plus 10 others from some other, some other corners and others that don't even have corners to go to, and you put them all in a park and you promote it to the public, and then you suddenly have this amazing event. And it's also not just an event that's going to move and, and find homes for animals, but it becomes newsworthy. And then you have stories that are going out into the into the media. You're elevating the awareness of the work, and then you're able. Then you invite celebrities along because we were in Los Angeles, and everybody eats, and you meet celebrities outside of supermarkets, and so you <laughs> you invite those people along. And you know, celebrities are different in each town. Sometimes it's the local football coach, or the news broadcaster, or John Dunn was a celebrity in Salt Lake City. Uh, so when you are able to start parlaying all of these little bits and pieces. There's no one thing that is the, the secret sauce. All of these things are additive. As you build this, uh, the base of support and the scale of activity, you're able then to, it becomes a something that's worthy of note. And then you're able to communicate with, with the public through major media. And all of that is raising awareness of 
the cause and the cause is ending shelter killing. No kill then became a thing and it was being debated and it was being, people were opposed to it. People were in favor of it. People were fighting over it. It was, you know, people were throwing, having food fights at city councils. It was, and it was all about no kill. No kill became the driver of the conversation around animal welfare as a result of really pushing this message out through all of the different channels that we were able to do. So change isn't something that comes, you know, that we have to initiate we initiate it, but it's not something that people are perfectly capable of doing this work. Um, and now the latest iteration of that is the dashboard. I'm not sure who convinced you I was a celebrity. Well, John, I mean, that's the first thing I heard about you. Maybe I just fooled everyone so I could score a job. I don't know. So the dashboard, you mentioned this incredible data set. Everybody can use it. You can see what's happening nationally. You can see what's happening in your state, all the way down to your community, which I mean, we couldn't get to no-kill 2025 without it. Earlier, you used the term uh, all hands on deck. But right now, today, in every community, you know, I feel like we need more hands. And we need organizations to step up and care for more decks than they have before, to, to use that uh, metaphor. So this idea of organizational growth, doing it sustainably with intention, and I, listen, I keep trying to nail you down on this because, of course, a lot of hard work involved to get best friends to where it is today. Definitely some probably lucky breaks here and there as well. But I want to know, like, how did you do it? Francis, you said this is, you know, what you wanted to do and you all saw it as this purpose. But also we didn't, hey, we didn't know where the next meal was coming from. And I hate to say it, Francis, but that's not a plan. That's just like blind faith. <laughs> Tell me about the evolution and the growth and the intention of it and how you were able to cultivate it into what exists today. Well, one of the things, and I, you know, this may not be what you're, to your point, but I think it may get there if we can work our way around to it, is that we always uh, featured other organizations and individuals in our messaging, in our stories. We became in a sense for a lot of people, an honest broker of information and an honest broker of recommendations. So people would come to us. We would recommend other organizations. Hey, you should help these guys. You should help those guys. When we did events in Los Angeles, all our celebrity events, we got sponsorship for $5,000 grants for a number of local organizations at every one of our events. So the events were, and they, we invited them in to come and set up booths and tables. So it wasn't all, you know, best friends focused. It was really about how do we, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you share that? That only gives us better relationships with these organizations and also better relationships with our public because they trust us to, to direct them to organizations that are doing good work and individuals that are doing good work. So that kind of honest broker relationship was something that was built, um, again, not by, hey, let's go be honest brokers. It was by simply doing what any sensible, normal person would do, which is to recommend people who are doing good work. So that was um, a big piece of it. The other, when we actually started getting down to building programs, I can't say enough about the work that was done in Salt Lake and the work and Rich Avanzino. Rich Avanzino introduced a lot of really important things into our movement. For the longest time, we, like everyone else, were simply you know digging in the pile. We were doing good work. The, the need was so great, as I said, that anything you did was fine. And so the idea of having actual goal, we are going to stop this. We're going to, here's the timeline. Here's the goal. Here's the end of it. Here's 
we're going to do the no kill 2025. That was something that was kind of like Rich Avanzino introduced through Maddie's fund, this idea of we need accountability. We need to know what the numbers are. We need to know what you're doing with, you know, they were providing grants. They were, this is our Gregory and Julie Castle principally led that in Salt Lake. So that idea of really having metrics, of having goals, of having very kind of incremental goals to a sustained uh, target, that's something that was really introduced into our organization through Julian Gregory in, in Salt Lake. That then translated over into NKLA. So Julie took that model uh, and introduced it into Los Angeles. I mean, I had had you know years of work in Los Angeles and was able to kind of provide a really fertile ground for this to land in. And Julie in 2010 uh, sort of started initiating this idea of the at the time, it was No More Homeless Pets Los Angeles, a la No More Homeless Pets in Utah, which quickly became NKLA, No Kill Los Angeles. So that was a coalition. And the coalition model was really something that was formalized. Well, we'd had coalitions uh, by default, and there was a kind of a de facto coalition through the, the conferences where everybody felt part of this you know, goal of no kill but actually having very deliberate as you and intentional coalitions to achieve specific goals in a, de, in a defined community was something that really was evolved out of the work from Salt Lake, then to Los Angeles and then to communities. Now the, the entire country, it's the same model, which is that, okay, what's the need? How do we get there? How do we break this down into achievable goals? How do we do all this work? How do we target? How are we more efficient with our work? And that's what was really amazing about the dashboard was that we can estimate there are X number of animals being killed in shelters. And if you were to sort of spread that in a smear across the country, you'd have a country that, you know, a map that was sort of uniformly pink. But then when you dive down into that, you see, no, it's not pink. This is green. This is white. This is blue. This is yellow. And over here is really red. And over here is really red. Okay, so these areas really need our work. These red areas really need our attention. But what's going on in those areas? Well, this one is mostly cats and this one is really under resources. There's nothing going on here. They have, it's, it's, you know, an impoverished part of the country that really has, uh, is living at you know, the, it's in the seventies. So you're able then to start prioritizing different types of work, targeting the work and being much more effective and efficient with your work. So that's how that evolved. And I, I credit Julie particularly with really pushing this forward, not just within best friends, but nationally the idea of okay this is doable it requires analysis we need to look at what what is the actual what is the problem we can't solve something if we don't know what the problem is the intention here is not just to keep working the intention here is to actually solve the problem and so 2025 is the uh, culmination of that vision and that idea and that discipline and it's it requires an enormous level of discipline because it required at one point saying, okay, here are our programs. And we had a gazillion programs. And we got to the point, well, well should we take Michael Jackson's giraffes? You know, we got <laughs> mission creep, you know? That's not true, is it? Oh, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I thought I knew Best Friend's history, but apparently not that. So that was after he died? Yes, I think it was, uh, or is it after he died or after the farm, you know, his uh, Wonderland, whatever that place was that he was at. Well, why did you say no? <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm kidding, but there's a good point there. I feel like for anyone in leadership or on boards, you are having to make those choices. You're creating strategic plans. Where are we going to be in the future? 
because as time passes, you are, you know, you're faced with forks in the road. One path maybe is to take over the contract for sheltering operations in the next county over. And the other path takes you to giraffes at Neverland. <laughs> but you encountered those forks and I'd be willing to bet maybe you had disagreement about the future of best friends. You know, maybe it wasn't the giraffe issue, but maybe, you know, somebody wanted to take the giraffes. So looking into the future of best friends, you know, is it beyond the sanctuary and how much so? Or is our future to be a sanctuary-based organization? And from here, we'll write about good things happening and support, but, you know, the people and dollars will stay largely in Utah. It's a huge topic in its own right. But that struggle, I think, of what we are as an organization is very interesting. Yeah, and I don't think there was ever any question or any disagreement or dissent from the idea of, uh, of a responsibility beyond the sanctuary. That wasn't really the question. It was, you know, there were things that were pet projects of different folks. But then at some point we, we had uh, a really come to Jesus conversation about, okay, here is our mission. Here's our goal. What can actually be, can we measure that, that achieves that goal? So is it keeping animals out of the shelter? Is it getting uh, more animals adopted? Is it getting more animals out of the shelters? Are we reducing, is this activity materially affecting that equation, that, that result of shelter killing? And if it couldn't be measured or quantified, then we said, well, then this really needs to be examined for its value. And a lot of things got, uh, you know, deep sixed and we changed a lot of things. And it was a hard conversation because there were a lot of things uh, that were people were really attached to, like, uh, you know, various humane education things, which are great, but which we could not measure and other things that were not measurable. So we really streamlined our work into very well-defined categories of activity that would, would, could ladder up to our mission and our goal. So I think at one point we had, you know, 27 strategic initiatives or something, and they ranged from, you know, animals and religion to humane education to this, to, you know, a whole universe of things that were great, that not that they didn't have merit or that they weren't important, but that they were not measurable. So we really boiled things down to what can we measure and what can we actually, when we're spending that dollar, does it, how does that go towards life-saving? So unless something has had some surpassing organizational value, like people visiting the sanctuary, for lack of a better example, we said, well, okay, we can't, we're going to have to sort of drop this and expand this. So we went through that very difficult conversation. And that was probably around 2009, 2010. So that really put a focus on the work. So those were the hard conversations. How do we what are we going to let go in order to get to where we want to get? But there was never any doubt about the fact that we had responsibilities beyond the sanctuary. I saw a post on Facebook over the weekend, and it's not an unusual one. I feel like this conversation is had uh, on the regular, but a question about no kill, specifically using the term and wondering what others use or what would be a good alternate. Obviously, no kill is important to best friends. Can you explain why? Sure. And maybe just talk about, you know, when is something killing and when is something euthanasia? Well, I think uh, for me, and I think, you know, going back when we're getting into this as a, both as a philosophy and as guiding principle, it's about an affirmative refutation of the idea that killing is okay or that it's in any way a solution to anything. When we're uh, having to 
kill an animal, and I say having advisedly there, uh, because we've run out of options. And then we're failing. We have to we have to own that failure. And when we're saying that, okay, well, does that mean that nothing ever dies? No. This this again, the, the principle of kindness is the guiding principle here. If an animal is irremediably suffering, has zero quality of life, is in pain, is so dangerously aggressive that the only management protocol is so restrictive that it constitutes, you know, a burden and, and, and cruelty, then that becomes euthanasia. That's an that's a, a, a act of kindness and generosity. When it's done for any other reason, it's just killing. Uh, let me just push back on you a little bit on that, because if it is all about kindness, the word kill uh, sort of inherently feels like quite an unkind word. I mean, it's certainly harsh. So tell me then, why is it the right term? The amount of time, energy, and uh, work and aggravation that's gone into the idea of finding an alternative term for a very uh, nitty-gritty and difficult choice and decision has always come up short. I mean, back in 1996, we said, look, you know, there are a lot of these folks who are really good folks, they're in the shelters, and they are, the idea of no kill um, just puts them outside of the picture. And so how do we be, how do we embrace them more? And so we started working with the term no more homeless pets. And so we, we had the the exercise for a number of years of not using the term no kill me we didn't ban it from our discussion but we were talking about no more homeless pets as our goal uh and no more homeless pets was just so confusing to people it was you know some people thought well is this pets living under bridges um is it people living with homeless people is it, it and it was it didn't really get to the point of the issue and the point of the issue is that we shouldn't be killing animals. <laughs> and the, the only way you can describe taking a life that can be saved has value, has inestimable value to that animal. That animal wants to live as badly as you or I. And if that animal's life is being taken uh, for any reason other than to alleviate its suffering, uh, that's, not, that's not good. And so we were unable to, and I don't know that anybody else has come up with a term that addresses it more directly. And also that communicates more urgency to the public, because after all, this is something that the public needs to be a partner in. And that's something that is a motivator and has been a motivator. So it's not to be a pejorative on anybody, but to, to understand that if we're not hitting those marks, when, when we're working our way towards those marks, we have work to do, we are failing. And we have to acknowledge that. Uh, we're failing the animals in our care. Uh, and that may be the, the immediate reality, but it's not uh, something that we can happily live with or accept. And by softening, softening that language and softening that terminology, uh, it doesn't, I don't think it does justice to the issue and, and the work and also, or nor to the animals. And again, we didn't come at this from the idea of numbers and, you know, shelter uh, models. We came at this from the idea of kindness and compassion, that our promise that we make to the animals that we touch is, don't worry, don't worry we're not going to kill you. <laughs> so that uh, commitment to their lives uh, is something that we've taken, took very seriously and take very seriously. And it's a function of 
that philosophy of kindness. Now, if there's a better term or a term that, that generates that level of urgency, and that's consistent with our fundamental philosophy, by all means, but uh, we've yet to find that. Mary Ippolitti Smith from Maddie's Fund uh, was the guest a few episodes back, and she said similar things to what you just said, which is, you know, that from the public's perspective, they get it. Like our arguments about this or discussions are very like inside baseball. The public understands the difference. It is a rallying cry in that we need to stop killing. And here's what you need to do to help us stop doing that. You said it's not a pejorative. I always screw up. I hope I said that right. And I think that's super important because every chance I get on this podcast, I will remind everyone that I live and have lived essentially a life of luxury in this world. I'm not an animal control field services officer. I'm not someone who works or has worked in a shelter and had to make the decisions on who lives and who dies or be the one that has had to carry that act out. I can't even begin to fathom the emotional toll that takes, but I feel like I can understand and feel empathy as to how in that role, how that term might sit with me. And I don't mean when some like crazy unhinged member of the public calls me a killer. I mean, how does that make me feel given what I had to do yesterday and what I have to do today? Like it's a, like a tough term to, to swallow, if you will. Well, and I, I totally get that. And I, um, you know, we worked with, well, we do work hand in hand with shelters all over the country. And, you know, I did a lot of work very closely and personally with LA Animal Services and with Brenda Barnett. You know, it was a touchy, obviously a difficult topic. But Brenda very early on said, look, let's face it, you know, we are killing animals. We have to be own that and we have to be do do better. And now that kind of was wasn't something that was a, a, a popular conversation, it wasn't something that she kind of touted uh, or pushed at her staff. And it wasn't really the point. The point was that, OK, yeah, there is no justification of these animals dying apart from the fact of we need to do better and we can do better. We work together. Uh, it wasn't a matter of being accusatory or being it was simply a fact. You know, let's it's, it's not a personal accusation. However, I think in the past there have been people who have been related to that rather lightly and may have deserved the term killer. Um, simply because their attitude towards euthanasia, as they called it, or putting animals down for convenience, was so cavalier that they it wasn't something. Look, we have done. We're we we've. I'm lost here. I've done. We've done everything we possibly can. We are not able to. I don't have anybody who can take this animal. Can you know? So they, they were. They it wasn't. They had exhausted all possibilities. It was just part of the routine of their operation. I mean, originally when we talked about no kill. It was about the idea of killing animals as a, as a method of population control, as a method of population management. And to the extent that it is still used as a method of population management, it's a problem. And on, when that's why we talk about that 90%, because when they, someone, an organization, a community, a shelter, an operation hits that 90%, we can be pretty sure that they're not doing it as a matter of convenience or a matter of population control. They're busting their ass to do everything they can to, to save the lives of every animal in their care. And there are going to be some animals that are going to fall outside of that, their capabilities and, or that, they're, they're, that have the, not their capabilities, but that fit into that profile of these animals are suffering. 
they're terminally ill, they're injured beyond belief, they're dangerously aggressive. And that 10%, you know, is that headroom to accommodate that reality. So, sorry, so I firmly believe that the term no kill, whether it offends people or not, I'm, I, I'm sorry, but it does define our uh, philosophical approach to this, which is uh, the idea that killing is not acceptable. And anytime that that's happening, we're failing. It doesn't mean that we, that we uh, execute each other or, or that we need to do more work. And we need to accept that as a, yeah, we failed here or we, are, we need to do better. And we need to kind of get as much help as we can, whether it's from our community, from other organizations, from prayer. I don't really care where. We need to get more help to do a better job here. And I think that sets a, a standard, not just for our work with the animals, but it's a kind of a, it is somewhat absolutist. There are some things that are not just gray areas. You know, there are things that are, we have, we can say, uh, have a, a moral and principled stand on things. Just to kind of round that out maybe a bit, you know, if you're in a position where you are euthanizing healthy uh, or treatable animals, killing animals, say something. You know, you don't want to do it anymore, say something. There are programs that exist and people who can help you. We have the Best Friends Network. This podcast is part of that. No one should ever feel alone and have to look in the mirror and wear a label that is unfair and, and may feel extreme if those are decisions that you have to make, then like, let's figure out together how you can make different ones and save lives, not end lives. But it is probably fair to say that continuing to kill animals when alternatives exist, that's actually much more extreme than a phrase in the English language. So although we are having these questions and this discussion over and over about the terminology, within you know, our professional circles, there's been so much movement, Francis, on the conversation around people and pets. I wish I could remember who said it now. It was a, somebody a few episodes ago, but they said the other end of the leash. So knowing the foundational beliefs of best friends, that there's a higher vision. Well, in fact, the vision of best friends is a better world through kindness to animals. You know, We're considering people as part of that conversation more than ever before. So I imagine to you, that must feel good to see progress uh, and see the discussion on that level. Well, it does. And I think one of the, where you get to that from that perspective and is that, you know, if your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know? So the, um, and, and if you're interfacing with another Rich Avanzino gift to our movement was the idea, look, the, the public is the solution. The public is not the problem. You know, that the, that, that it's, we need to kind of stop with this idea that the public is the problem. The public isn't the problem. There are maybe, there's a, a very small sliver of irresponsible uh, pet owners. That's not the public. That's like somebody, you know, the drug enforcement officer who's dealing with drug dealers to, to imagine that the entire world is made up of drug dealers. But, you know, the fact that we're, when we're in that shelter environment, and shelters are not easy operations, and the way they're much easier now than they were. They're getting better because of the, the work that's been done and the decrease in the numbers of animals that a lot of places are having to deal with. But when it was just a turnstile of animals and being dumped and being dumped, it's very easy to relate to the public as the problem. But that was really, you know, that's the 80-20 the 
rule. And then that, of that 80, 20, it's an, of that 20, it's another 80, 20. And that breaks down. And they're, so they're, we're constantly having to reach more and more people and provide resources. And oftentimes what we're talking about in terms of people who don't care are people who don't have shit. We're talking about people who don't have the resources and you know it's kind of putting people uh, into a situation and then blaming for the situation that they're in. We are able to bring more resources to these communities. We're able to kind of provide you know that help for uh, you know the, the standard example is you know fix the fence so the dog doesn't get out rather than take the dog into the shelter and let it be killed. Uh, so we can think out of the box and be more proactive and work with the community because everybody loves their pets. Nobody wants to be dumping their animals. And so often people are just, you know, someone loses their home, loses their job, has a, a, you know, internal family dynamic that is just, you know, crazy. And the thing that they have to relate to, the shortest route to some kind of sanity in their lives is just, okay, we, we can't afford the dog anymore. We can't afford the cat anymore. We're going to just put the cat out, it'll be fine. Let it find its way, you know, it'll survive. The lady down the street is feeding cats. Just let the cat out. And the same goes with, with dogs. We can help those folks. We can create better situations for people. We can provide the resources. Best friends and a variety of folks are working in all sorts of these areas. You know, affordable housing, pet-friendly housing. Those are big issues. When you had the the world turned upside down by COVID, there were pet food banks and people helping you know walk people's pets to alleviate the 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 the, the burdens on people who were affected by the by the circumstances. So we've matured a lot and our, the idea of what is relevant and what actually makes that difference has expanded enormously. In your role, Francis, you're a founder of Best Friends, chairman of the board. You are someone that's been doing this for a long time. So I'm interested to know what you see ahead for not just Best Friends, but the country, the no-kill movement. Well, I think one of the things that, that is so inspiring to me is the work that's being done across the organization and these incredibly motivated young people who are really changing, doing so much more than I ever did in terms of really pushing uh, the envelope. The teams that we have in our embed programs around the country, which I'm sure you've spoken about, are just, you know, my God, you know, I am not worthy. That They are doing such amazing work. And I think the direction of Best Friends uh, and again, I can't say enough about Julie and uh, as a CEO who's kind of led this work. And I know that you would have had, rather had her here today, but you're stuck with me. So I may as well say something nice about her. She really is remarkable. And her vision, her kind of uh, uh, leadership and her team building is like off the charts. And so being able to kind of identify the need, put people in the right place to succeed bring people on board who have the skill and talents to, to really drive the needle and move the needle is something that is really, you know, humbling. Where I see it all going is I see it going to a successful 2025. You know, this is really ending shelter, killing every, every shelter, every city, every state. It sounds like a big, a, a big chunk to bite off, but it's real. And it's, that's the commitment. Every conversation that I intersect with every program, every report, everything I see is all geared towards that. Uh, and it's an unfailing focus on that goal. And so for best friends and for the movement, I see the thing being really, this whole season has been a big time of change because when you talk about the idea that the, that the public is the solution, not the problem, the ultimate extension of that is that the public, the community is the shelter rather than, and the shelter as this brick and mortar is not sort of the 
inappropriate uh, holder of the bag for everybody else's concerns and issues and problems. That's something that in an animal loving community that should be shared within the community. And that what we're seeing, particularly as almost forced through COVID when shelters had to limit their operations and some close their doors, was the public really stepped forward. Uh, and they stepped forward in a way that we'd always imagine that they that we would want to see the public step forward, but that we never really had the courage to say, okay, let's do that. Let's just push everything out to the public. And it's everything. We're not pushing everything out to the public. This shelter still has an important role in any imaginable future. But what this has done in this really this year of crisis is to demonstrate the viability of that idea that the public is the solution, not simply from the point of view of being the adopter, being the donor, of being the uh, the advocate, but actually picking up a, a piece of that work as being the foster, the adopter, peer-to-peer adoptions, neighbor-to-neighbor adoptions. And the more that can grow and the more that we design the work of the future of animal welfare around facilitating not just simply the shelter, but the community to be the, 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 the last recourse for animals in need in our communities, then that's kind of where this needs to go and where it should go. It makes perfect sense. I mean, you, you know, why should you be able to just dump your dog? You can't just dump your mattress even in most places. You can toss it out on the sidewalk and somebody's going to pick it up. So that's the future. The future is the, uh, the community being much more, not just default part as it has to happen with COVID, but that being formalized into a organized fostering volunteers uh, resources to help the animals. And the shelter has then has a much higher and more refined role in all of this. They were the, to relate to be able to make this, to put these pieces together, to facilitate this, to be the nexus of activity for animal welfare within the community, but also to help with things that are really serious, the serious problems that, you know, the, the average person is not able to do with special medical, um, the, the, those animals that are aggressive or need special care. And also um, the kind of distribution of, of resources from, you know, the taxpayer into the community to make this thing work in a much more seamless and, and humane way. Okay. A couple more questions. First, what regrets do you have? Oh, geez. I have a fantastic memory and my regrets are only limited by my ability to remember. I mean, I have regrets all along the way. I have regrets about decisions about individual animals. I have regrets about things I've done with people, but in terms of the best friends and the work that this has all been, uh, I don't have any regrets. And I, you know, one of the things I didn't mention here was the fact that, you know, we have this sort of supernatural, and I mean that in, probably in any way you want to interpret it, location here at the canyon, at the sanctuary. This is one of those kind of, if ever there was kind of an energy point or an energy place or some, you know, nodal center of good vibes, uh, Angel Canyon, where the sanctuary is located, is it. It has been sort of an inspiration to us all along the way. And we've always regarded it as an active agent in building the, the, the work. It's almost like the blueprint was here. We just worked around the blueprint of of what the design was here for the in this amazing canyon and so we've always had the canyon as something that's been both a guide and inspiration and a benchmark for what we do so i don't have any regrets about best friends i have personal regrets about my own things that you know the way i've handled one situation or another but i have nothing no regrets about best friends 
And then listen, you've spent a lot of time and effort and, and unquestionably you've earned it. So why aren't you just sitting on a beach right now somewhere sipping Mai Tais? Well, I mean, I think I'd like to be on the beach for, you know, a little bit, but I think basically the idea is that I think for all of us, I don't know that any of us ever regarded this as a job. You know, we, it's not something that was, it was what we love and what we, what we want to do. I mean, I guess I, I'm not suggesting I'm an artist, but if you compare it to someone who might, whose profession uh, might be art or as an artist, you don't say, Hey, okay, so time to hang up your brushes. I mean, they, uh, you know, you, you, you do what you do until uh, either you're doing it really badly and, you know, people have to kind of have that conversation with you or you uh, keep doing it until you have something, as long as you have things, something to contribute. So as long as I feel I have something to contribute or as long as others believe I have something to contribute, then um, here I am. See, now the way you answer that makes me feel badly as if I was suggesting you need to be on a beach, but of course I don't feel that way. Uh, I do want to thank you, Francis. This is going to get a little mushy, so I'm sorry. But personally, you know, I started at Best Friends uh, when I was 27. Today I'm 41. So, you know, the better part of my adult life has been here growing up. And you have been someone who both personally and professionally, you've been there and you've really been a mentor to me. So you mean a lot to me and you mean a lot to the entire movement. Uh, I told you it was going to be mushy. <laughs> well, John, I'm cheering up. That is <laughs> very kind of you, and I appreciate that. Um, well, uh, like I said, I'm just blown away by what the all the work that's being done, the work that you do, the work that others do, and the kind of uh, the scope and talent. I mean, I you look around the organization, and not just best friends, but around the movement. But I'm really taken with, you know, I have no best friends. Uh, more up close and personally than than other places, and I'm just boggled by the level of talent and commitment of people that uh, you know were not even born when we started doing this stuff, and it's really humbling to see their what they are capable of in terms of their skills and also their just their sheer commitment and positivity and their relationship to saving lives. It's so impressive and so humbling. So. Yeah, thank you, John. I have a lot of Francis memories, but one that will always stick with me is uh, one night we'd had uh, dinner at the sanctuary. There's uh, this beautiful sunset. We're out on a patio. Uh, in the distance, you can see the white cliffs of the Grand Staircase Escalante Monument, just you and I. And I said, Francis, did you ever think it would turn out to be like this? And there was a pause. And you turned your head and you looked at me and said, no. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Well, John, it's a, it, this is fun. And, you know, someday we need to do the goofy stuff. I mean, I, you know, we sit around the table uh, and talk about all of the lunatic experiences uh, that we had and the kind of the events that kind of propelled us forward and the sort of happy circumstance and serendipity. And there's a lot of those. So maybe we should carve out some time just for that because they're kind of fun and entertaining. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that. Maybe when we're able to get back to whatever normal is, we can hit the liquor store and we'll just plop a microphone in the middle of the dinner table. Perfect. That will require some heavy editing, I'm afraid. <laughs> Very good, John. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you again for what you're doing. Thanks again for helping support this crazy podcast and being part of this, helping us get to episode 50. My name is John Dunn. 
and this is the Best Friends Podcast.